Let us turn now to the church's confession as we find it in Lord's Day 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 55, found in the back of our book of praise on page 535. In question and answer 55, the question is asked, what do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, all and everyone, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. So far, our reading of the church's confession. After the proclamation of God's word, let us sing from Psalm 133, all stanzas. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Experts and non-experts alike have made the observation that one of the greatest ironies of the modern age in which we live is that though we are more connected than ever through the advances of technology, through all the devices for communication that we have, cell phones, the internet, Skype, social media, yet we are less connected than ever, ever before. For though the forms of communication have multiplied, yet true, authentic, deep communication can still be elusive and, and become superficial. And this is something that we can see even more specifically in Western culture, more than, than in other, other, other cultures we live in a culture of individualism, alienation, loneliness, brokenness, separation. People content to live as islands to themselves, separated at a distance from one another. And the church is not unaffected by this either. There is the danger of being divided and, and disconnected from one another, even as believers. And that might happen for a variety of reasons underneath the surface. One reason is sin. The church is made up of sinners whose sins disturb the communion of saints. As someone once wrote, to dwell above with saints in love, a that will be glory. To dwell below with saints, I know, now that's a different story. In all seriousness, though, there are ways, or many ways, in which the saints don't act so saintly, and sins of lying and murder and greed, selfishness, gossip, slander, among others, still appear in the church and cause division between the communion of saints, causing the communion of saints to suffer. But aside from sin, there might be errors in do doctrine or in conduct that create division within the church. As the church is described in the, the great old hymn we often sing, the church is one foundation. The church, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Not to mention how the saints below are separated by 
time and space, across the span of centuries and geography. These are just a variety of the ways that the communion of saints can seem more like the isolation of saints. Yet the church confesses the communion of saints as one of the precious articles of our faith. This is God's antidote for the problem of individualism and isolation. And so we'll give our attention to this doctrine as God's word is proclaimed to us this afternoon under the following theme, united with Christ, we are united with one another in the communion of saints. We'll consider first the foundation of this communion and secondly, the fellowship of this communion. First, looking at the foundation Oh, many agree that Lord's Day 21 is, is a very loaded Lord's Day and therefore can easily be and commonly be split into three separate sermons for it deals with the, the doctrine of the church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. There's much to cover here in, in one Lord's Day. And nevertheless, the territory that is covered in these three question and answers all fits together for they all have to do with the church. First, question and answer 54 on the church's identity. Question and answer 55 on the church's experience. And question and answer 56 on the church's message. All tied together. But this afternoon we'll focus on the aspect of the church's experience, namely our duty and responsibility to be united with one another. And where we need to begin when we speak about unity in the communion of saints is, of course, with Christ. As the Catechism rightly says, believers all and every one as members of Christ have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Those who believe are members of Christ. And that means the church is joined together by something bigger, something better, something beyond what this world can offer. We are joined to the object of our faith. We are united to Christ Though this unity is not complete and will not be complete until we get to heaven, yet this is a reality that we can experience already today as we learn to live together side by side in the trenches of life. And this doesn't come easy or natural to us. And that's why it is helpful, I think, to think of living together in the communion of saints as singing in a choir. A choir is not just a group of people who, who get together, uh, get up and, and randomly sing together, but they're a group of people who have to, to learn each their own part in order to sing in a beautiful unity and harmony with one another. As you can all imagine, a choir where everyone is doing their own thing is not going to have an audience for very long. And here on earth, the communion of saints will be no perfect choir. The bass will be off key. The soprano will squeak. But in heaven, there will be a perfect choir. The choir will be Perfected, The communion of saints will be perfected and glorified. And we look forward to that. We aim for that. 
but we also seek to express that here below today as much as possible. Now for that to happen, it's important that we realize our common connection to Christ. Because what can so easily happen is that our view of the communion of saints and the fellowship of, uh, of the church becomes tainted by thinking only of friendships and, and, and fellowship and family ties that we have with other believers. Or we think of the weaknesses and the faults of others and we see the lack of people serving and contributing and helping and, and, and knowing or sympathizing with your needs. Well, this kind of, of human level perspective can produce the kind of idealistic idea where someone will say, yeah, what, what communion of saints? I don't see it. I don't experience it. And that then becomes a, a recipe for bitterness, for, for discontent, for complaint and pain and disappointment. And the problem there is that we are looking at the communion of saints from an earthly from, and from a selfish perspective. It's not a matter of what I can get from others, but what do I have from Christ that I can give to others in the body. The communion of saints is based on love, on sacrificial love modeled and motivated by the greatest example of sacrificial love, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the catechism emphasizes that the communion of saints is nothing without our connection to Christ. That's the, the strong foundation of our fellowship. The, the fruit needs a root. The branches need the vine. For as you know, if you were to, to snap a, a branch off of a vine and, and separate its connection, it, it quickly shrivels and dies. It cannot live on its own. And so also our mutual love for one another in the church is a fruit of our connection to Jesus Christ, the vine. As we trust in him, as we live as disciples in obedience and honor to him, his love flows through us and, and to others. And so the, the vertical relationship is the foundation for the horizontal relationship. As we read through the Bible, we find the communion of saints described in a variety of ways. We can think of the imagery of, of the flock of sheep belonging to the one shepherd or the assorted stones that are fit together into one building with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And of course, the body imagery, the body composed of different parts joined to the head, Jesus Christ. But one of the oldest pictures for the communion of saints that we read about in the Bible is what we read in Psalm 133. In this psalm, short psalm, the, the blessing of unity in the Christian community was pictured by the anointing of Aaron, the high priest. It was a, a beautiful picture to consider. The precious, fragrant anointing oil representing the, the Holy Spirit was poured out on, on top of, of Aaron's head to, to designate him as the one chosen 
by God to lead his people. And after the oil was poured on his head, it would spread down to his beard, to his garments, to all the extended parts of his body. It was a picture of how far-reaching and how extensive God's blessing was to Israel, showing the unity of all the different parts. And then the psalmist moves on from there quickly, shifting the, the unity metaphor to the dew of Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. Now to understand this picture, we're learning a lot today about Mount Zion. We, we need a brief lesson regarding Israel's geography. Mount Hermon was nowhere close to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Instead, there were 160 kilometers or 100 miles apart with Mount Hermon in the north of Israel, Mount Zion in the south. So for the dew of Mount Hermon to fall on Mount Zion would be a true miracle, a miracle and no less supernatural, no less significant than the bond that exists between believing brothers and sisters in the church, united by the the common dew of God's blessing. So there, so then it is not the common interests that we have that join us together, common political affiliations or common love for the same sports and activities and hobbies or other mutual interests, whatever they may be, as good as all of them may be. No, Christ is central to what ties the church together. He's the center of attraction. He's the center of gravity for us, him, his work, his word. And that unity in Christ extends beyond all the differences that there may be, race or ethnicity or class or social standing or popularity or education or intellect or wealth. Not even sins or weaknesses properly confessed in a true spirit of repentance will be able to... to stand between us and separate us in the communion of saints because we see one another in Christ as forgiven sinners, fellow heirs of the grace of life. This is what lies at the root of what brought you all here together today and each week. It's not a a social club where everyone looks alike, thinks alike, but it is a church where a a diversity of people from a diversity of backgrounds with a diversity of views and, and personalities are drawn together because Christ has drawn us to himself. So how does this express itself? And this we'll consider as we come to our second point, the fellowship of this communion. What receives emphasis in the second part of the catechism's answer in question and answer 55 is the exercise or the expression of the communion of saints focusing on our duty and responsibility towards one another. And there are two remarkable things about this that we all should recognize. First is how countercultural it is to speak about our duty especially our duty towards others. 
For we live in a day and, and in an age where everyone is concerned about their rights, reproductive rights, rights to bear arms, civil rights, gender rights, rights to use the bathroom of your choice, right to marry, right to divorce, right to whatever. And all that people want to talk about and protest about is their long list of things that you cannot do to them and things that, that you cannot make them do. And in the face of all that, the catechism speaks of being duty-bound. You're duty-bound. And a duty is something that I'm obligated to do towards others. As believers, we are duty-bound to use our gifts for the benefit and well-being of other members. And that brings me to the second remarkable thing that the gifts that the catechism speaks of, echoing the gifts that the scriptures speak of, well, these gifts are rather unremarkable. The extraordinary thing about the gifts that the Bible describes is how ordinary they are. It may be the smallest of things that we willingly and cheerfully do for the other members of the body. In passages such as Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, each and every member of the body is said to have gifts given them by Jesus Christ. We could say that he is like the sun, the sun in the sky, and we are like the, the rays of light radiating from him with the gifts that he has shared with us and, and works in us. And having differing gifts, whatever your gift may be, we are told, use it for the body. Now this is not just the teaching, the teaching gifts, that is, given to the special offices in the church, what falls to the minister, to the elders, to the deacons, but also prophecy, knowing how to speak God's word, to bring a word of comfort, bring a word of admonition, ministry, uh, serving others, uh, ho being hospitable to them, welcoming them, teaching, not just holding the official position of a teacher, such as catechism teachers or Bible study leaders, but also parents to children in the home and brother to brother, sister to sister in the church. And the list goes on to include the, the spiritual ability to exhort, to give, to rule, to show mercy, to give comfort, to be cheerful. In other words, Christ has distributed a, a wide variety of gifts across the spectrum of, of the members of the church. And all of us have a gift that we should use for the benefit of the other members. And that's a beautiful thing to see that worked out, to have within the church different approaches to different things, different ideas about what should be accomplished and how to go about that inside the church. And these differences, so long as they are faithful and in line with the scriptures and the confessions, and church order, and they don't compromise the truth as it is expressed in what we have agreed upon in the three forms of what? Unity, appropriately called, outside of which disagreements are not necessarily unhealthy 
And there can be room for disagreement within the bond of faith, within the communion of saints. Now, this doctrine of the communion of saints is not just a reality, but it also places certain demands upon the body of believers. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is something we must do. It's a responsibility laid before every one of us to use our gifts, not for our own advancement, for our own advantage, but to use them for the advantage and advancement of the other members of the body. But maybe you're scratching your head at this point thinking, I, I don't know what my gift is. How do I discover it? How do I find out what it is? Well, here, let me caution you by saying it need not be too difficult, too complicated to figure it out. For wrestling with such a question for such a, a great length of time may indicate a, a problem beneath the surface. Perhaps the problem is one is over-focusing on oneself, or maybe they're coveting the gifts that another has, or, or failing to see the opportunities right in front of us because we're so blinded by our own sinfulness and our own busyness, or maybe we fail to see the, the richest and most important gifts in the church. For consider... The gift of faith, the gift of faith, expressing our hope and our trust and our confidence in the Lord, no matter what we're going through, uh, that in the highs and in the lows, uh, the mountains and the valleys, God is our faithful God and Father and guide. What an encouraging gift you can give to someone else by simply expressing your love for the Lord and his love for you whether life be going pleasantly or unpleasantly. Or consider the gift of love. The gift of love, evidencing care and concern for one another whenever your paths cross, whenever you meet, whether you know the person well or not, yet expressing that love in thought, word, and deed, and words of affirmation, deeds of affirmation. Or consider the gift of prayer. Who cannot bring other, other members of the congregation before the Lord in prayer, regardless if they know the particular needs they have or not? God knows their needs, and he is the one who hears and manages all that we bring before him in prayer. And these are gifts we all have and we all can do, and yet there are many other gifts that, that, that we have that others may not have. We have been given different gifts in different measures. And yet, as 1 Corinthians 12 or 7 says, to each the Spirit is given for the common good. Now, some gifts are indeed more noticeable, more prominent than others. <clears throat> but that is not because such gifts are more important. Paul combats that way of thinking by describing the church in terms of a body. For just because a part is not easily seen does not mean it has no role to play. 
In fact, such unseen parts are often more important than the parts that are seen. Though you've probably never seen your heart or your lungs, chances are you wouldn't say you could live without them, you could be without them. No, you need them. And in the same way, there is not one part of the body that can do well enough on its own without the rest. Instead, when one part suffers, they all suffer, and no part is left behind to fend for itself. But the rest of the body looks after it, cares for it, knowing that when separated off the body, there is no chance of survival. And so we all have gifts, and we are to use them readily and cheerfully, to use the language of the catechism, not reluctantly, not grudgingly, not because we, are, because we are waiting to be asked or to do it only for recognition and for appreciation and to complain if we, do not, if we do not receive it, but we use our gifts with humility, selflessly, readily, cheerfully, contributing generously in service of others, for others, for the welfare and advantage of the church. That's where the unity the true unity and harmony is seen where we enjoy the, the blessings of salvation through the communion of saints to strengthen and encourage others and to be strengthened and encouraged by others. But that joy will only be ours if we contribute, if we participate in the life of the congregation. If we stay on the sidelines, if we steer for those sidelines, don't gather for worship at every opportunity that we have and are able to, if we don't contribute, if we don't involve ourselves, if we don't participate, if we go into hiding, we form our little cliques in the church, then we forget what's central to the fellowship of believers and we won't experience and enjoy the rich gift that God intends in the communion of saints and it will all instead become a burden for us. But our covenant God would not have it be that way. He created us for fellowship in the communion and covenant of believers. And in that covenant, we may put on display for the world to see the effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that that we show what, what real and vigorous and authentic Christianity looks like not each part doing its own thing, but working together for the good of the whole and for the glory of God's name. And so in closing, let, us, let each of us examine ourselves and compare ourselves against what we confess in, in question and answer 55. And some of us, if we're honest, we'll see that we have room to grow and we have work to do. But others here, thanks be to God, may be able to take great encouragement from what God has, has worked into your life by incorporating you into his body and how he has blessed you richly as a living member of this congregation surrounded by other living members. But let none of us take God's grace for granted and sit back and think, there's nothing I can do. No, the vineyard 
was planted by the heavenly gardener, by the vine dresser, to be fruitful. And the fruit is produced only when the branches abide in the vine, connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christ said in John 15, verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. How do we show ourselves to be Christ's disciples? Well, Christ tells us how in John 13, 34 and 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see then that a Christian is not one who displays moral or intellectual superiority or smug self-righteousness. Neither is the defining characteristic of a Christian doctrinal precision, the ability to show how, how you are right and others are wrong. No, Jesus says it's by your love for one another. That's how people will know that you belong to Christ and you are a follower of him. And that's what people ought to see, something they have no other way to explain as they see us live together despite our differences, despite our faults and shortcomings. They are left speechless and except to conclude that the Lord Jesus Christ must be real and he must be special and he must be reigning on the throne in heaven because look at those people who follow him and see how they live. So let that be what is most enticing, most appealing, most beautiful, most attractive, and most engaging about you, brothers and sisters, members of the body, branches of the grapevine, Saints of Christ's communion in Edmonton Emmanuel Canadian Reformed Church. Amen.